14. Turn with me to Romans chapter 14, which is going to be our passage for today. Romans chapter 14, I'll be reading from the ESV version. Paul writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he'll be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass, not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know, I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So how do we do it? How do we reopen? How do we regather in this day of COVID-19? It's a disputable matter. As communities and businesses reopen, as programs restart, as churches regather, you might have seen, maybe, maybe you've seen and heard in the media that there seems to be just a little bit of disagreement about how we do it. Just a little bit of dispute and uh, a little bit of an argument about that. And Chestnut Street family, I know that there's a dispute and disagreement about how we might regather too. And in today's passage, Paul is writing to the Roman church about disputable matters in the church. Now, disputable matters are debatable matters. These are matters that are not directly commanded or condemned in the Scripture. Not directly commanded or condemned in the Scripture. And for all of my searching, I did not find a direct command or condemnation regarding coronavirus or COVID-19 or regathering in the Scriptures. And so on disputable matters, we need to study the Scripture and within the bounds of its authority, we are free to choose. And in the passage in Romans 14, Paul is writing primarily 
about Jewish Christians who are choosing to fast from meat and wine and they're observing special days as holy. And Paul refers to these brothers and sisters in Christ who are more strict in their observances as weak in faith. Now, that's not a dig against them. That's not meant to belittle them. Paul says that the weak in faith have remnants of a religious culture. They just don't have the freedom of the strong. The the weak are not false teachers. They're not lesser brothers and sisters. The weak Christians are distressed, in fact, by the freedom from cultural discipline that seem to be practiced by the strong. How can you act like that? And both sides are condemning one another. The, The weak are suspicious of the strong, and the strong are condemning of the weak. And the strong, in this case, are just those who feel free to ignore the cultural disciplines of Judaism. So in the case of Romans 14, the weak happen to be the Jewish Christians and the strong happen to be the Gentile Christians. But incredibly, when we look at the whole of Scripture, in 1 Corinthians 8, we see the roles are reversed. In 1 Corinthians 8, which I'm going to read a couple of verses from, and you're welcome to turn there with me in your own Bibles. Um, In 1 Corinthians 8, we have Paul writing about food sacrifice to idols. And he says, now about food sacrifice to idols... We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Now, the knowledge Paul was talking about there was the knowledge that idols are powerless, that they're nothing. And so meat that was sold in the marketplace, which in part had been sacrificed to idols and in part was being sold as meat in the market, is not really, was not really participating in the worship of any god because idols are not gods. And Paul says we know that. We have that knowledge. But for some... Their consciences are weak. In verse 7, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating at an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what's sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So in Romans 14, we find that it was the Jewish Christians who were struggling to keep their traditions. And here in 1 Corinthians 8, it's the Gentile Christians who are struggling against the traditions of their idolatrous backgrounds. So in verse 8, the Gentile Christians are the weaker brothers and sisters, and the Jewish Christians are the strong. So we find the roles reversed. But in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14, to which we're going to now return, we find that Paul's advice is the same to the weak and the strong. But before we consider his advice, I just want to note that. Notice that at any time, you could be the weaker or you could be the stronger. You know, these two passages show us that all of us in one way might be the weaker. And all of us might be in one way the stronger. You might be the weaker brother or the stronger sister, the stronger brother or the weaker sister. You might struggle in one area, but not in another. You might be weak in one area and strong in another. And just because you happen to be strong in one area, don't get prideful. Because compared to another brother or sister in Christ, you might be weak in another area where they are strong. 
So you see, the danger that Paul's identifying is that the strong will tend to look down on the weak with scorn as the, and their fearful, faithless scruples, and the weak will tend to condemn the strong and take offense at their godless and unloving liberty. But that doesn't apply to our situation today at all. I don't know why I'm preaching this. Thank you. It's nice to have a little bit of a crowd. I almost got a chuckle out of that. Now look at Romans 14. Starting in verse 1, again, he says, As for the one who's weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Not to quarrel over opinions. What if we tried to apply this today? One person believes she may go, she may go anywhere without a mask, while the weak person only ever leaves the house wearing a mask. Let not the one who goes without a mask despise the one who wears a mask as fearful, and let not the one who wears a mask pass judgment on the one who does not as unloving, for God has welcomed him. Stepping on any toes yet? Friends, how this country reopens and how we regather as a church is a disputable issue. And how are we to handle such disputable issues in the church? In verses 1 through 8, what did we hear? Paul writes, accept those who differ from you on disputable matters. Accept those who differ from you on disputable matters. As we face this reopening, we need to begin with humility, friends. We need humility, and humility enough to admit our uncertainty. You know, I am distressed personally by the incredible amount of unassailable certainty I keep hearing from both sides of the discussion. I hear one side coming at me with unassailable certainty that this is all a hoax, it's a conspiracy, and it's nowhere near as bad as we're being told. And I have the other side with equal certainty saying that unless everyone does a mask and does exactly everything the government says, we're all going to die. And friends, the truth is somewhere in between. You heard Paul warn in 1 Corinthians 1.8, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. And I've heard a lot of puffed up people. Very, very certain of themselves and their positions. But does that so-called knowledge build up? Friends, love. Love, it says, builds up. And the truth is, none of us are certain. None of us can be absolutely certain if this is all an overblown hoax. None of us can be absolutely certain that all the precautions that are being mandated are necessary or will make us any safer. So we need to accept and listen to those who differ from us about such disputable matters because we're lying to ourselves if we say we're absolutely certain. We need the humility to confess that maybe, just maybe there are things that I do not yet know. Maybe there are things that I do not completely understand. Maybe there are things that I cannot be absolutely certain of. And in humility, listen to and understand, well, why would somebody else believe, choose, act differently? Maybe it's not because they're stupid, wimps, brainwashed, coward, calloused, or unloving. Friends, you do not know everything there is to know about this virus. And neither can you be absolutely certain that this is all a hoax. Nor can you be absolutely certain that this is as bad as we're being told and that the measures are making us safer. We need to replace our certainty with humility. We need to admit there are things we do not yet know. There are evidence. Yes, we can evaluate the evidence, but we don't know everything and we don't have all the evidence. So maybe some humility is in order. Humility enough to accept those with whom we differ. To listen to them. To respect them. And most importantly, church, to love them. And Paul writes in verses 9 through 13, in the end, we're going to leave judgment to the Lord. 
You see, Paul's not forbidding making a judgment of spiritual maturity or the readiness for ministry like we might do, or looking at visible behavior, but he's forbidding judgments on people's spiritual worth. He's forbidding judgments on people's identity. Because the strong will always undervalue the weak as scrupulous and will worry too little about them. And the weak will always criticize the strong as dangerous and be, have far too much concern about them. And Paul says, stop judging and condemning each other. You know, one of the most egregious ways that we are judging one another and condemning one another right now is by labeling people and not behaviors. Church, we are guilty of labeling people and not behaviors. Time and time again, I am hearing us attack one another at the level of identity. I am seeing articles and having them sent to me, identifying any Christian who would wear a mask as a coward, as faithless, and frankly, as a wimp. And I've also read commentary identifying Christians who do not wear masks as unloving, as reckless, and as calloused, and nothing like Jesus. Notice that those labels are judging and attacking and condemning who a person is, not what they do. There's a difference between talking about action and talking about identity. There's a difference between saying, you appear afraid and you're a coward. And Paul says, stop judging each other's identity. Stop attacking each other. When we attack identity, what do we do? We're using shame. You know, guilt says, I did something bad, but shame says, I am bad. And when we judge others, and when we call them those names, we're labeling them, and we are shaming them. I just read an article in the Gospel Coalition website about our cancel culture. You've probably heard that phrase used, the cancel culture. And he writes, it was once the case that differing opinions, including ones that challenged culturally approved mores, were debated with facts and sound argumentation. But now, when a person does or says something that runs afoul of the current cultural preferences, we just cancel that person. We shut her down with names, epitaphs, ad hominem attacks. Be warned, we won't engage your ideas. We'll engage you and shame you out of existence, and you will be canceled. And what the larger culture is doing to one another and what we accuse the larger culture of doing to Christians, we're doing to one another. We're labeling one another, shaming one another, silencing one another. Friends, we're attacking one another's identity. We're passing judgment and condemnation. And I've heard Christians say, I'm ashamed of other Christians. I'm ashamed of how fearful they are. I'm ashamed of other Christians and how unloving they are. Church, we can discuss behavior. But to attack and to condemn and to shame those for whom Jesus Christ died. They're not your servants. They're Christ's servants. He will judge them. We dare not. Paul's writing here, Jesus says, I'm the judge, so get out of my seat. And will we? Finally, Paul writes in verses 13 through 16, don't become a stumbling block to those who are weaker in their liberty. You know, I've heard some people say they don't want to participate in or encourage the, the weakness or the fear of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And therefore, they refuse to wear a mask on principle. They believe they shouldn't adhere to any of these other ridiculous regulations. It doesn't sound like Paul's attitude here. 
But also consider Paul's attitude in 1 Corinthians 9. In 1 Corinthians 9, which followed right after 1 Corinthians 8 that we read, Paul wrote and he said, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them and its blessings. See, Paul says, I'm subject to the law of Christ. I still do what Christ says. But beyond that, culturally, I try to fit in with people. I don't go to be unnecessarily offensive. I try to adapt. I'll give up rights and freedoms, things that I absolutely know I have every right to do, but for the sake of my brothers and sisters and for the sake of the gospel spread, I'll give up those rights. And friends, in the most extreme example, how far was Paul willing to go? Well, you might remember that Paul even persuaded Timothy to be circumcised so that he could evangelize the Jews. In Acts 16.3, it says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Friends, Paul spent so much time debating those who said, you must be circumcised to be saved. He spent so much time in all of his letters writing against the necessity of circumcision and saying that circumcision means nothing. Galatians chapter 6, verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. If it counts for nothing, why did he have Timothy do it? He had every right not to do it. It was meaningless. It was worthless. But he said, no, for the sake of the gospel give up our rights lest we cause somebody else to stumble for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of my brothers and sisters will you give up your rights give up your freedoms things that you're absolutely free to not put so that you don't put a stumbling block before others now friends I believe I believe we have good reason to fear to fear where we are right now to fear government overreach I believe we have reason to fear our loss of freedom, so don't hear me saying otherwise. I believe that scientifically and statistically we should be evaluating the actual risk of infection and the response to government. It may be too heavy-handed and not scientifically sound. Scripturally, we should always be moving from fear to faith, trusting God as our protector and our sovereign. So don't hear me saying any of that otherwise. The question is, how are we going to discuss these issues and these questions in a way as to not put a stumbling block? before our brothers and sisters in Christ or cause a stumbling block before the watching world. Because, you know, we need to remember there are two ways that we might address any issue. We can address any issue philosophically or we can address it personally. When we talk about an issue, we can talk philosophically or we can discuss it personally. You know, if I'm going to have a philosophical discussion about abortion with a political activist, I will be pointed and direct I will be unabashed in my philosophical attacks on misguided ideas and flawed assumptions. I will attack the underlying morality of the assumptions that undergird abortion. And I will be unyielding in my advocacy for life. But if I'm talking about abortion with a woman who's had an abortion, 
and she's uncertain about the choice that she just made. And she's fearful of the unexpected consequences of her decision. And she's afraid of condemnation and judgment by others. Well, I talk with her the same way about abortion that I would talk about that activist? Of course not. Now, hear me correctly. I'm not saying I would change the substance of my position. I would not change it one iota. But I would change the style of my conversation. In the first instance, I would approach the conversation philosophically. I'm debating ideas, concepts, exposing assumptions, defending positions. In the second instance, I'm discussing this personally. I'm no longer speaking abstractly about issue. I'm talking to a person. I'm not just debating a philosophy. And very few people do a good job philosophically and personally debating at the same time. One notable example was Ravi Zacharias. The evangelist who just went home to be with the Lord. He, he didn't just debate ideas. I mean, yeah, he didn't just debate ideas. He, he actually reached people. In fact, Rabbi Zacharias once said, Jesus didn't come to win a debate. He came to win his people. Jesus never answered a question. He answered the person. Jesus never sought to win an argument. He sought to win the individual. And so how are we going to approach this discussion, church? Do we want to win the debate? Or do we want to win our brother and our sister? For most of us, we default one way or another. We're probably more likely to argue philosophically or personally. Where We might be more likely to get caught up in the particulars of a story or to get caught up in the pain of a person. We might get swept up in the righteousness of an argument or the story of a sufferer. But friends, knowing who we are, knowing how we might be, how will we engage? How will we engage this conversation? You know, because to one who's fearful right now, yelling at them, don't be afraid, you coward, is not going to inspire anybody to faith. Fear is not rational. Yes, you can quote statistics and science and examples, but the fearful, the fearful doesn't need that. They need somebody who will come alongside them and lead them to faith. Now, I will say it also does no good to go and cower with them in their fear and just stay there. But you need to go to them. Understand them. You're talking to a person. This is not a philosophical debate. It's a personal debate. And only from that personal touch can we lead people from fear to faith. Church, we are commanded not to flaunt our freedoms in such a way that destroys one another's faith. Let us also remember we are commanded not to flaunt our freedoms in a way that destroys somebody else's faith. There was a local Christian woman who recently posted on Facebook that her son had gone into a grocery store without a mask, and she was clearly very amused at just how uncomfortable her son had come back and said other people became, became. and she was proud. She was flaunting, that, that he was flaunting his freedom, and they hadn't given in to fear, and he'd exercised his right not to wear a mask in the store. And friends, even if you have the freedom not to wear a mask, this passage tells us you don't have the freedom to belittle others and their fears and scruples. Verse 15, if your brother or sister is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. Walking in love. Wearing a mask is a debatable issue. Its efficacy and statistical necessity are debatable. However, flaunting your freedom and then bragging on Facebook in a way that belittles others, that's not debatable. That's sinful. You're no longer walking in love. 
You are destroying brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. You are letting what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. And you're unnecessarily endangering the good name of Jesus Christ before this watching world. Friends, there are reasons for us, yes, now to be afraid. We should be afraid of catching or accidentally infecting another with this virus. We should be afraid of government overreach, loss of freedoms, and loss of livelihood. But what we should be most afraid of at this time, church, is what this debatable issue might do to the church and the witness of Jesus Christ if we mishandle it. We should be most afraid of that. Paul reminds us the call of the call to unity in the midst of our uncertainty. To bear with the weak, not to despise and fear the strong, and to let love lead us. Church, as we regather, the only way that we are going to regather is if we regather graciously. And what will you and what will I need to surrender to make that happen? Let's pray together. Father, help us. Help us in our weakness. Help us in our fear. Help us in our uncertainty. Help us, Father, to most of all To most of all, fear disunity. To most of all, fear dividing the church and shaming the name of Christ over a debatable issue. And Father, help us to trust you in this hour and every hour thereafter. Help us to bring glory to you in our regathering, just as you had glory brought to you in our scattering. Father, we commit ourselves to your care, to your leadership, and we give you the glory and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.